Amen. I'll tell you a little story. It was 19, I'm sorry, 1838. It's been a while. Um, 1838, Queen Victoria, well, she's about to be queen, uh, is going to be celebrated as the next queen of England. And it's kind of a big deal, like it always is in uh, England, London, for the royalty to be announced and coronated as, as royalty. This was a big deal. This was a big party, in fact. Uh, she had something like 80 symphony players, 157 choir members. She had military marches in the streets. She was in an unbelievable carriage that carried her. There were over 400,000 people that attended this coronation. She had in her crown alone, she had these giant sapphires and rubies that surrounded a 309 carat, yes ladies, 309 carat diamond. But that was the small diamond. Because in the scepter in her hand was a diamond that was cut from what was called the Star of Africa. It was 516 and a half carats. Kind of a big deal. Probably a pretty heavy scepter, right? This was, this was a major event. Dignitaries, VIP, this was an incredible moment. And everybody knew it. It was quite different from the moment that happened that we know of 2,000 years ago that we celebrate today as Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He didn't have all these dignitaries. He definitely didn't have any precious stones or actually any earthly possessions. He had uh, some stragglers behind him. There were some fishermen and some normal people. And he rode in on a donkey. And we know this day as Palm Sunday because the people began to lay down palm branches in front of him. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem as king. They wanted him to be king for right then, for that moment, to take over Rome. But he wanted to be king of their hearts. And they missed the whole point. And we're going to get into that this morning just a little bit. Look with me, if you will. We're going to look at a couple of different uh, accounts of this story. We're going to look at John's account. We're also going to look at Luke's account. I'm going to start with Luke, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 28. And they tell us different aspects of, of the story, so that's the reason we're looking at them, at them both. Let's, let's start with Luke, Luke 19, 28. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where uh, on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, well, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, uh, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, 
the very stones would cry out. Last week, we, uh, if you were here, we talked about kind of some of the day's events that led up to this moment. Jesus, like I said, you know, anybody who's only got a few days, a few weeks to live, there's a few things that they're going to want to do, places they want to be, people they want to be with, and things they want to do to prepare those people for when they're gone. And we see that Jesus went to this place that he loved called Bethany, and he spent time with the people he loved. Remember the family in Bethany? It was Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. It was a big deal. And then after he raised Lazarus from the dead, they want to throw him a party. I want to throw him a big dinner. Well, what's interesting is right after the dinner, on the very next day, we see this scene play out in John's gospel. I want to look at that together if we can. All right? John 12, verse 12 says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Some things I want us to understand about this story are some contextual things. Okay, First of all, this time period in Jerusalem is is a celebration of Passover. And one of the things we need to know that I think is so amazing about our God is in this celebration of Passover... Uh, Every family would sacrifice a young, unblemished lamb. Well, they wouldn't just kind of go around back to the stockyard and find a good-looking lamb and then go sacrifice it. They did something pretty interesting. Usually on the 10th day of the month, they would find the unblemished lamb and they would bring that lamb into their home. They would bring the lamb, the little lamb, they'd bring it into their home. I'm thinking about, if I brought the little lamb into my home, you know, that lamb would have like a fluffy would be the name or something, you know what I'm saying? They would be, my daughters would be painting its little hoof or whatever those things have. I don't know. That it would become a family pet, and that's probably what happened. The family began to build relationship with this little lamb from the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, but on the 14th day of the month, they would slaughter that lamb. And I think there was meaning and purpose that there would be a relational connection to that animal and that that animal would go and be a sacrifice for their sins. This is just trying to give you some context. Well, theologians believe that Jesus rode into town, not on a Sunday. We celebrate Palm Sunday on a Sunday, but rode into town probably on a Monday, which would have been, interestingly enough, the 10th of the month. And he would have ridden into what was really the heart of the home of Israel, which is Jerusalem. He would have ridden in to Jerusalem on the 10th, and of course we know that he was sacrificed on Friday, the 14th. Showing again in just this small little way, or big way, symbolic that he is the true Passover lamb. It's estimated that at Jerusalem, they took a census 10 years after Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem. And they found that there were 2 million people in Jerusalem for Passover. I've been to Jerusalem and it's it's not a big city. You can stand on the Mount of Olives and see the whole city. 
It's, 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 not, it's not a big city. Two million people would have overwhelmed that city. And theologians say for about that many people, there would have had to have been about 260,000 lambs slaughtered every year at Passover. 260,000. And yet here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem to be the one true final Passover lamb. A ransom for many, as Scripture puts it. And the thing that's interesting is the crowds follow Jesus into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They don't realize that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Theologians believe that there were probably hundreds of thousands of people. I've never thought about that. I mean, I thought maybe hundreds, maybe a few thousand, but no, we get the sense from Scripture that there were a ton of people. And based on that two million number, they think hundreds of thousands of people witnessed Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. Uh, here's some of the words that, that some of these, uh, these gospel writers use. In Matthew, he tells us the whole city was stirred up. Uh, John uses this phrase. He says, the Pharisees said, look, the whole world has gone after him. Both of these writers are using this hyperbolic language. In other words, they're, they're going to extremes to try and explain how many people were interested in the arrival of this man named Jesus into Jerusalem. It was a big deal, but why is that important to us? What is the triumphal entry to us? What, why do we need to know? And what, why would so many people begin to shout praises to this man. But why? Right? Well, the first thing I want you to see, and I've got this on your card if you want to keep, keep up with these. The first thing we need to know is that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Uh, John mentions it in his gospel and his account of, of the triumphal entry. But this is Jesus fulfilling prophecy. And, and we've talked about this. Prophecy is the author's way of giving us a hint. Right? He's trying to give us the foreshadowing of what's going to happen. And we know that in the Old Testament, we've talked about this, the Old Testament, there's hundreds of hints, hundreds of clues about what the Messiah would be from Jesus' birth to his death. This is one of those moments of a messianic prophecy that John's alluding to from Zechariah. And I want to read it actually from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is just yet another clue. This is another sign that Jesus is Messiah. He says daughter of Zion or daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, Zion is just the, the tallest hill. It's not really a mountain, but it's the tallest hill right in the center of Jerusalem. What he's saying is people of Israel, notice when your king is coming to you to Jerusalem. And look at the, the descriptors that Zechariah gives us here. The Lord gives through Zechariah. He says he's going to be righteous. Now, is there any other person that could come to Jerusalem on a donkey that was righteous? None. Only Jesus could come in that way and be righteous. He was without sin. He was the only one that could fulfill that title, that role, that description. He was the only one that was righteous. He says he was having salvation. Jesus' name. The name of Jesus means the one who brings salvation. This, is, this could only be Jesus, right? Having righteousness, bringing salvation. He's humble and mounted on a donkey. Let me tell you something. 
How many of you have actually ridden a donkey? Let me see your hands. Yeah, it's not a, not a lot of fun, is it? Not a, necessarily a fun ride. They don't have necessarily the greatest gait. It's not a comfortable ride. And, and honestly, anybody who uses a donkey as a mode of transportation is a humble person. You know what I mean? And that's the point. Jesus chooses this animal to ride in to Jerusalem. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. Jesus, he's setting all these things into motion. Think about the significance of this. He's setting all this up into motion. He is in control. Jesus is in control. When I was thinking about this, I thought about the scripture where Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John 10, 18, where he says, he's speaking about his life, and he says, no one takes it from me. You hear this powerful language from Jesus, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Jesus is speaking about his omnipotence, his power. He is all-powerful. He's so powerful he can lay his life down. No one will take it from him, and he can take it back up again. That's the powerful God that we serve in Jesus, and that's what he's speaking of. And so in this moment, I want you to recognize Jesus is setting these things in motion. Luke tells us he sends two disciples into this village, right? He says, hey, there's going to be a cult tied up. Watch this just for a second. There's going to be a cult tied up. The cult's never going to have been written before. And I want you to untie it, bring it to me. By the way, somebody might say, hey, why are you untying that cult? Look at the detail. And just tell them the Lord has need of it. What happens, right? They go into the village. They find the colt tied up. They start to untie it. Somebody says, why are you taking the colt? Well, the Lord has need of it. They must have said yes, okay. So they bring the colt to Jesus. It's playing out exactly the way Jesus said it was. So Jesus has not only shown us his omnipotence, but he's shown us his omniscience. He knows all things. He sees all things. He's watching this play out, and he's allowing it to happen. He's making it happen. Do you see that? That's important. He knew everything that would happen because he is God. He's not just a prophet. doesn't just see something. He's allowing and, and causing these things to happen. They're playing out because that's the way he set it up to. Thirdly, I want you to see this. John, in his gospel, he shares that the disciples actually begin to praise Jesus. And I would even say it actually begins with Mary the night before. This is when the atmosphere of worship begins, right? This is a dinner. People are hanging out. Jesus is back with, with Lazarus. They're hanging out. Martha's doing what she does. She serves. But Mary changes the atmosphere, doesn't she? When she comes to Jesus and she pours this, this unbelievably valuable perfume on Jesus' feet. And you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody would have paid attention to what would have been worth $25,000 in our, in our day and time. At least. Poured out on the feet of Jesus. And she doesn't only reserve, uh, she doesn't only just do this from her physical possessions. She takes her body and her hair and she dries his feet. Remember that? Well, even it says, and I love that scripture in John 12, I believe it is. It says the fragrance fills the house. Well, that fragrance of worship is continuing on to the next day because the disciples, they're still in this attitude of worship. And so they go and get the donkey and they bring it back to Jesus and they go, you know what? Let us lay, these, lay our coats, our cloaks down on the donkey. And because 
it's, it's symbolic of saying, Lord, this is all we have. We serve you. We lay our lives before you. Sit on this. And you know what happens when you begin to worship authentically? It, it's contagious. And worship fills the house. And so other people go, wait, let me, let me take my coat off. And I'm going to lay it down on the road. And let that donkey walk over my, my coat. And all of a sudden people are taking their cloaks off. And it catches on. And worship is contagious. And people who don't have cloaks, maybe they grab the palm branches and they begin to lay them down. The reason this begins to be the, such the scene that it is, the Bible tells us in John, is because the disciples had seen the miracles Jesus had done, especially the one with Lazarus. That's the reason for this moment. Oh my goodness, we've seen him do this. And the worship from the night before is carrying over into the next day. And we're worshiping Jesus as the almighty king that he is. I don't know if you saw the Billy Graham funeral uh, just recently, but before the funeral actually took place, there was a procession all through North Carolina, and I just loved watching the honor and respect of people just standing on the side of the road, and maybe they had their hands over their hearts, or they had signs saying, thank you, Billy, or, or whatever they were saying, quotes, different things. It was a beautiful honoring. Well, that's not unlike what we saw here in Jerusalem when Jesus is on his way, except Jesus wasn't dead yet. They were honoring him. As king. So this is to lay down my cloak is to say a couple of things. Lord, I give my life to you. I give all that I have to you. I, I want to serve you. But it also means your royalty. You are royalty. You are king. Okay? And I want us to see one other really interesting thing about this sign that we, people laying down these palm branches on the road. It's also symbolic of salvation. And I love, I love this. Look at this. So Revelation 7 verse 9 says this. It says that one day a great multitude, which no one can count from every nation and every tribe and every people and every tongue, that we will be before the throne and will be before the Lamb. I love that it even uses the Lamb because that's who we see Jesus is about to be here in this scene at uh, the triumphal entry. Before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and we will have, guess what? Palm branches in our hands. I want, you to, I want you to think about the significance of this. Jesus is showing that he is the God of the past, the God of the present, and the God of the future. So not only is he fulfilling prophecy, riding in on a donkey, he's fulfilling prophecy, he's prophesying of what it's going to be like in heaven when we're gathered around the throne and we're laying down our lives and our crowns and holding palm branches just as they did at his triumphal entry. God who was and is and is to come. So the people begin to cry out this phrase, right? There are different phrases. Uh, Matthew says, they said, son of David, which is basically the same thing as saying he's the Messiah. Different gospel says that he's the king of Israel. Another phrase is Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. In fact, even the word Hosanna is synonymous for me with this day, Palm Sunday. We think about them singing Hosanna, but the, I want us just to look at the word Hosanna for a moment. It's a Hebrew word, and the word actually means save now. So yes, many of us at different times in our lives, we need the Lord to, to do that, right? But it's possible that the attitude of which Hosanna was shouted out might not have been a good one. <laughs> save us now. Save us now. Hosanna, save us now. It's interesting how quickly we see them going from worship to wants. 
They go from worship to wants. And as soon as I began to think about that, I thought, how often do I go from worship to wants? How quickly do I go from bowing in worship and saying, Lord, here's my life. I lay it down before you. And then an hour after we leave the service, I'm, going, I'm mad that we didn't go to the place I want to go to for lunch. You know? It's just part of the fallen condition, I guess. And that's what we're seeing take place. What began as a time of worship, what began as Mary laying out this beautiful display of worship and the disciples following suit, laying down their cloaks, laying down their lives, and people begin to catch on, but some of what's taking place is not heartfelt. And if you think about hundreds of thousands of people that are shouting something, we begin to see that it's possible to shout worship and yet not believe it. So much of this story is so filled with irony. It's a very sad, honest irony, if I'm being honest with you. Think about this. So the city is celebrating this, this, uh, the feast of Passover. They're, they're celebrating this time. And we know what Passover is, right? It's a celebration of for when uh, God led Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, right? And remember how he did that? In the last plague, he said, you're going to take, this is interesting, by the way. I wonder if this is a coincidence. No. He said, you know what you're going to do? You're going to take the blood of an unblemished lamb and you're going to put it on the doorpost of your home. So when the death angel comes by, he'll pass over your family and your family won't have to experience death. Think about this for a moment. So the whole nation is celebrating Passover when God delivered his people, right, from Egypt, from the bondage of Egypt. And from that death, and yet the irony that we see here, here is Jesus, the very Passover lamb himself, who wants to lead his people out of the bondage of sin and death. And he wants them to apply his own blood over their lives, over their hearts, so they don't have to experience the bondage of sin and the reality of death. And they miss it. They miss it. The sad irony that's taking place in this moment. And because they don't see it, they don't want it. And Jesus explains here in Luke 19, as we continue the story, he says in verse 41, and when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Remember in our story last week, we see Jesus weeping two times. And remember, he wasn't just weeping because his friend Lazarus had died. He's weeping because there's a much more gravity to the reason for his sadness. He's weeping over the cause and effect and price of sin. There's something deeper that he's weeping over. And guess what? He's weeping again, but it's not just a shallow reason. There's a lot of gravity in the reason that he's weeping again. He's looking at this city. Let's see what he says in verse 42. Would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon us when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. I'm right here. The Passover lamb, I'm right here. And you don't see it. You're saying some things that, that seem to make sense. You're, you're shouting some things that are correct, but you don't believe it. Here Jesus is showing that 
sometimes people can have a, a mob mentality and not have an inner reality. It's easy to go along with the crowd sometimes and it not be a reality in your heart and in your life. Everyone's shouting something. It seems to pull them together. In fact, it draws people out of their homes and hundreds of thousands of people are now witnessing this triumphal entry, we call it, of Jesus on a donkey riding into Jerusalem. And they begin to shout things, but most of them had no idea who this was or what they were saying. They were just connected. They were just drawn into a mob mentality. And it wasn't an inner reality. Matthew 21.10 says this. And this is after Matthew's explained. They're, they're pronouncing titles to Jesus. Son of David, right? Hosanna. They're saying these things. After they do those things, uh, verse 10 in Matthew 21, he says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, oh, that's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Wait a minute. Wait just a second. Weren't they just saying, son of David? Weren't they just saying, king of Israel? Save us. And yet now the crowd's going, by the way, who was that? And the answer given was not, hey, that was Jesus. Messiah. The Christ. That was not the answer, was it? What answer did they give? That was Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Yes, Jesus was a prophet. We also know him to be priest and king. And they, they didn't ex ex explain, they didn't say that he was Messiah. Their hearts were interested in worshiping Jesus, but honestly, more than Jesus, they wanted a king. They wanted a king that would overthrow the Romans. They wanted to take back their identity as a country. They wanted prominence again. And they needed somebody to lead a, a revolution, a revolt. Jesus definitely led a revolution, but they were looking for a revolt. They were looking for somebody to take over the Romans. And that was never Jesus' mission, was it? That was never his purpose in being there. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse with the military with the army ready to fight, he rode in on a donkey. He rode in with righteousness and salvation and humility. His salvation was from sin and death, not from Rome. One of the guys I learn a lot from, theologian John MacArthur, he says, he was not at that time intended to come in earthly splendor or in, to reign in earthly power. He did not come in wealth, but in poverty. He did not come in grandeur, but in meekness. And he did not come to slay Israel's enemies, but to save all mankind. The incarnation was the time of his humiliation, not the time of his glorification. He did not come to make war with Rome, but to make peace with God. See, the illusion that people were believing that was that maybe he could be the king that would make war with Rome. We can have our prominence again. We can have our country back. That wasn't Jesus' purpose. It wasn't his reason for being there. His desire was to make peace with God. And Jesus even speaks of it when he's saying that in Luke 19. You don't know what makes for peace. It's a very sad thing as I studied this this week. Honestly, this is a very sad story. 
It's sad and it's tragic because there is so much irony and there, there are so many people believing so many things that are not true. They're deceived. They're believing one thing, but it's not the truth. You see, the irony is that they were right in shouting that he was the son of David or that he was Messiah. They were correct. They didn't believe it. The irony was that they were right in shouting things that he was coming in the name of the Lord because he was. But they didn't accept it. And they were right in saying that he was a king. But they were wrong in thinking that he would set up his kingdom on earth. When Jesus came to establish his kingdom in heaven, he came to fulfill the kingdom. They were wrong in thinking that he would overthrow Rome. Instead, what happens? When Jesus prophesied in Luke 19 that the enemies would come around Israel and they would overtake them and they wouldn't even leave one stone upon another 40 years after Jesus' death. The Romans tear down the temple and they leave not one stone on top of another. And they were wrong in pretending that when they laid down their coats and their palm branches that really they were laying down their lives and they were respecting royalty. Because it was all conditional. Hey, I'll lay this down if you'll do something in my life. I'll lay this down if you'll be king for Israel and we can overtake the Romans. And how often do we do the exact same thing? Lord, I'll do this. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to live this way. Can you please do this? I don't know how many times in my life I've made those types of demands, those types of requests on God. God, I'll do whatever you want. Just please help me with this. But the reality is, to accept Jesus as Lord is to accept him for who he is and what he's done and whatever he chooses to do. We say, yes, you're the king and we're not. MacArthur says this about these folks that were watching Jesus' entrance. He says, they were totally earthbound, materialistic and self-satisfied. They were interested only in the kingdoms of this world, not in a kingdom of heaven. They would have accepted Jesus as an earthly king, but they wouldn't have had him as their heavenly king. Which reminds me, does that sound familiar? See, there was another time in the history of Israel where they wanted a king. Oh God, we want a king. God was saying, I'm your king. I'll I'll be. No, no, no. We want a man. We want a king. And God warned him. He said, if I give you a king, it's going to be a mess. And it was a mess. And yet here again, the people are saying, "Mm, tragically, God, we don't want you. We want a king to do what we want. We want a king to serve our purpose, not a king to help us understand yours. So what does this story tell us about our personal relationship to Jesus? Where are we in this story? How how do we see ourselves in this? Maybe like what uh, MacArthur said, maybe we too are just totally earthbound, materialistic, self-satisfied, only interested in the kingdoms of this world. Is that you? Is that your heart? Maybe this time of year we just go along with the crowd. I mean, this is, I mean, we, just the other day we were at the, uh, these apartments down the road and we're handing out these Easter cards and saying, hey, we'd love for you to come to church Easter anytime, in fact, come. And one lady said, oh, yeah, it is about to be Easter. I guess we do need to go to church. And I said, well, you can come actually anytime. See, at this time of year, we get this mentality that, oh, I better go to church. That's what we're supposed to do. It's mob mentality and not an inner reality. 
how soon we begin to scream out things like, Hosanna, blessed is the king. One moment in the next we say, who's Jesus? Jesus asked his disciples, this is a thing I want us to focus on before we leave this morning. He asked his disciples, he said, who do you say I am? In fact, Jesus pulls a DTR. Anybody know what a DTR is? Know what that is? So it's a relational thing in relationships, and it's kind of become this term, define the relationship. Okay, you ever heard that before? I had to do that. Oh, I've had to do it several times, actually. But I remember one time in high school, there was this girl that I was, had a real crush on. I mean, for a couple of years, I just really had this crush on this girl. I got up the courage to ask her to go to a church function, believe it or not. And we were having like a spring formal, and I asked her if she would go. She said, yes. I was beside myself. I dressed up. I got her a dozen roses. I took them to her house. And, I mean, I was the perfect gentleman. Brought her to the function, you know. We were having a good conversation, connecting. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I was so excited. And uh, we were on the way back to her home, and, and I said, I, well, I felt the need to DTR. I felt the need to define the relationship. I wanted to see what my chances really were here, you know. So I said, hey, um, what, what, you know, you think you maybe want to go out? Like, you know, I was nervous. Would you like to maybe go out on like a real, a real date sometimes? She's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. That's, you know, that's what I, me too. Um, <laughs> I completely, completely agree. I, so I, you know, holding back the tears. No, I'm, I'm driving back to her house, not super happy. And we get to her house, and I, I'll never forget this. She runs in the house with a dozen roses. And as I'm pulling away, I look in my rearview mirror, and I see her come back out the house. And I'm like, oh, what? And then I see her get in another car that's waiting on her. So let me tell you what she did. She defined the relationship pretty well for me. And her definition was, I don't care about you at all. Right? There, we have no relationship there's nothing going to happen here. Don't even, don't even think about it. In fact, there's somebody right over here waiting on me to get out of your car. This is kind of what Jesus does in this moment. He wants to define the relationship with his disciples. Because crowds are saying a lot of things about who he might be. But here's the reality. Jesus doesn't care as much about the crowds. He wants to know what you think. But he, he asked them. Let's read it. Matthew 16, verse 13. He says... Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, uh, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, no, no, no. <laughs> who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus asked, what are people saying about me, they begin to tell him these characters, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Moses, I mean, these different people, different prophets. But I want you to notice something. All of those people that they mention are all forerunners of Jesus, and they're not the Messiah. Then Jesus brings it down to what he really wants to know. That's, that's fine. Who do you say that I am? Let's get serious. Let's, let's define where you are right now. Let me see what you really believe and what you really think of me. Who do you say that I am? And Peter did what he always did. He jumped up as a spokesperson for the group. And he says something pretty wonderful, 
actually. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, wow, Peter. In fact, he doesn't even use his, his name Jesus given him. He says, Simon Bar-Jonah, which just means Simon, son of Jonah. In other words, I know the family you come from. <laughs> I know where you come from, and you didn't learn that from them. You didn't learn that from flesh and blood. This is not who you got this from. You got this from my father. And we know that to be true, right? John 6, says, only the father draws someone to himself. Only the father can do that. So for Peter to know this truth is because God the Father showed him this truth. And Jesus is acknowledging that. And then Jesus does something very, it's kind of controversial, but very important. We need to look at it just for a moment. Jesus says, you're Peter. He uses the Greek word Petros. That word means a small stone. You're Peter. And upon this rock, he uses the word Petra. It's a different Greek word. It means mountain peak. It means mountainous. It means huge rock. He says, on that rock, I'll build my church. Well, the Catholic church believes that when Jesus said that, he was telling uh, Peter that he was going to build a church on Peter. Now, how many of us actually think that Jesus, after this life lived and ministry lived, he's going to leave his church to be established on a human being? But that's what the Catholic Church believes. They believe Peter was the first pope. And in succession, they believe that when the pope says something, it's as if God says it. But Jesus wasn't saying that Peter was the rock. He was saying what Peter had confessed. What Peter had said was the rock. He was saying, Peter, my father has shown you that this is the truth. And the truth was what Peter said. Remember what Peter said? He said, Jesus, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. That's the mountain peak. That's the rock that the gospel is the truth to us. That is what Jesus is building his truth upon. Any one of you, any one of us that says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I believe you died for me. God raised you on the third day. We'll celebrate it next Sunday. You too are a part of this church that Jesus is building on that confession. Not Peter. Not Peter. Ephesians 2 even speaks of Jesus. We sang it this morning. He's our cornerstone. It's not enough just to shout with the crowd. It's not enough just to kind of go along with everybody else. And this, there's not a time uh, at the season of Easter where everybody's kind of seemingly going along with everything. I don't know a time... Uh, different. I remember thinking about 9-11. You remember when 9-11 happened? Man, everybody was, yeah, America. And we should have been. We should have been brought together, but it didn't take very long for us to splinter again. See, what matters this morning is not what the crowds are saying. And it doesn't matter that to just to say one thing and, and live another. Jesus is defining his relationship with the disciples, and he's defining our relationship as a disciple. He's saying, no, don't tell me what the crowds are saying. That's, that's interesting, but what I'm truly interested in is who do you say that I am? And not just who do you say that I am, what does your life say? Who does your life say that I am? Does your life say that I'm 
the Christ, the Son of the living God? Or just your words? Who are you trying to make Jesus in your life? You know, I think when I think about this story, I think about the sad illusion that these people wanted Jesus just to be king. They wanted him to do some very specific things and to save now. And I think about the fact that we do the same thing all the time. Say, Lord, I need you to fix something, so will you be that king for me? Or I need you to heal something, so will you be that king for me? Or I I need you to to back me up. I'm going to do a ministry. Will you back me up? (laughs) Instead of truly submitting our lives, our bodies even as Mary did, and saying, Lord, there's nothing too precious that I could give you that I could lay down before you. I will worship you as king. And when you're king, there's nothing too good for you. Jesus may not have been celebrated that day um, the way he deserved to be. But let me make no mistake this morning, church, listen. He will be celebrated. There will come a day where Jesus is celebrated for the King of kings and Lord of lords that he is. I want to look at this last scripture. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Those people didn't understand that day. They might have been saying Hosanna. They might have been saying Messiah or Son of David. They might have been saying a lot of things. They didn't completely understand who they were speaking about. But one day we will all bow a knee. And one day we will all speak and shout the praises of Jesus for who he is and for what he's truly worth. Who do you say that he is this morning? Just some figure of a religion? Is church just this thing you do at a certain time of year? Sadly, the church has has made a mess in a lot of ways. But I want you to know there's a beautiful truth to who the church really is. Those of us that make that same confession that Peter made. We're an imperfect church. We're a broken church because we're filled with broken people and we're led by broken people. So we don't want to make any illusion for you today. This is a church of brokenness saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus and that rock of that confession is all we have to stand on. Not talent, not gifting. We're sinners in need of a Savior and that's who we worship. Who do you say he is today? Would you pray with me? Lord, it's so interesting, it's so tempting to to just go along with the crowd and say, oh yeah, I know that song or I, I know that phrase and yeah, let's go to church, it's the time to do that. But Lord, you are so much more interested in our hearts. You are so much more interested in a true relationship that we can have with you. God, I pray that you would help us to not just define who you are based on what the crowd is saying. Oh, that's Jesus. He, 
He's a prophet. Instead, God, that we would be able to say when anyone asks us, who is he? We'd say, oh, he's the Savior. He's the Christ of God. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one, and I believe. He is the Son of the living God, and he has died for me. And God raised him from the third day. He had the power. No one took his life from him. He had the power, all power, to to lay down his life and to take it up again. And I believe. And Lord, it's our prayer, it's our plea this morning that you would build your church upon that truth. Not on any one person other than the person of Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy. And God, we don't want to wait right now. We don't want to wait till we get to heaven to worship you and to proclaim who you are and the worthiness of who you are. But right now, God, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate your glory, your power, who you were, who you are, and who you will be, God. We worship you, Trinity, for all that you are. Would you move in our church? Would you move in our hearts now? By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this morning, please?